The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Yay. Yay. (laughs) If you're new here with us for the first time, then welcome. 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 We're glad to have you. And as always, we hope you're having a good day and a good week and and a a good good life. (gasps) Is the tea ready? What was that? Did you just compare my wheezing slash squealing to that of a tea kettle? I did. Accurate. Period. (laughs) Period. I do be squealing and I do be wheezing. (laughs) It's not easy being wheezy. It is not easy being wheezy. But anyways, you guys, as you know, that's just a gesture from us to you. We always hope you're having a good day, a good week, a good existence, a happy time. We hope you're very safe and not full of anger or animosity. We hope you learn to forgive those who have hurt you and you move on from the things in your past that aren't that great. And you can live a happy, fulfilling, wonderful life. Are you okay? Yes. (laughs) And I just want to make sure that all of you are okay. And I don't know where that came from, but again, it just kind of fell out of my mouth. You know, some messages come from the ether. That is true what they say. And now that I think about it, I kind of blacked out for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. But, you know, today in our corner of the world, it was actually pretty nice. It was a vibe today. It was. The sun was out. Yes, we had Dollar Scoop. If you don't know what that is, we have a China Express in Griffin, Georgia, and they call it Dollar Scoop. So we had Chinese food today. It does not get better than Dollar Scoop. With the crab and the lo mein and the egg rolls. And the really sweet, sweet tea. And right, and the mushroom chicken. Like, it was just good. And then we came back here, and we cut each other's hair. Yes, you let me shave the sides of your head, and I think it looks honestly really dope. I asked for a Chelsea cut, so I like that kind of, you know, kind of mohawk, kind of mullet look. But yeah, I like it. It just goes with my elvish slash Norse vibe that I got going on. It's, you know. I really like it. It's very fitting. It's very unique. So we really don't have a whole lot of stuff to talk about in terms of business or administrative stuff. It's been pretty chill this week. As always, 
We still appreciate all of the interaction from you guys. It's really, really nice. But, 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 to end the good note, I would be lying if I said that today was going to be pleasant. <laughs> because it's not. Nope. We have finally made it to part three. Yes. Of Ted Mother fucking Bundy. Yes. And I'm going to implement every single trigger warning that I can put out there because if you guys notice that I'm not my usual self today, <laughs> that is because I am so over it. I'm so over it. I'm over this man. I'm over the things he did. And I'm just ready to be done. Right, right. I think we all are. You have no idea. Like, where we ended in part two, there's a whole nother peak that he hits. Oh, my God. Uh, right. As not excited as I am, I do know that the sooner we get into this, the sooner we can be done, the sooner we can all move on. <laughs> it's been a horrible five weeks in particular <laughs> i'm so ready like i'm with you i think i speak for all of us when we say we are ready well then let's dive right in in part one we discussed ted bundy's early childhood he grew up believing his grandparents were his parents and his mother was his older sister Later on in life, he discovers the truth about his real mother while in college after his girlfriend, Diane, broke up with him. Ted resents Diane for dumping him, and that resentment shows itself in the physical similarities of his victims. They all look like Diane. Ugh. In 1969, Ted got involved in politics, working for the Republican Party, while also majoring in psychology at the University of Washington. This is where Ted would meet and date a single mother named Liz for six years. Ted appeared to be the perfect family man. Him and Liz were madly in love with each other, but behind closed doors, Ted was living this whole other life. During his relationship with Liz, Ted would also date his old flame, Diane. Things would get super serious for them, leading Ted to propose to Diane only to dump her two weeks later as a means of revenge. As I said in part two and in part one, that is so messed up. I'm still not over that. I know. It's terrible. Ted's offenses escalated from petty crimes and peeping through women's windows to brutally and savagely attacking his first victim, Karen Sparks Epley, with a metal bar from her bed frame, leaving her permanently scarred from the assault. In part two, we discuss the timeline of events that occurred from 1974 to 1976, where Ted abducted and brutally murdered the following young girls and women. 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy, 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson, 18-year-old Susan Elaine Rancourt, 22-year-old Roberta Kathleen Parks, 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball, 18-year-old Georgine Hawkins, age unknown Brenda Baker, 23-year-old Janice Ott, 18-year-old Denise Marie Naslin, 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox, 17-year-old Melissa Smith, 17-year-old Laura Ann Aim, 
17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent, 23-year-old Karen Eileen Campbell, 26-year-old Julie Cunningham, 24-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson, 18-year-old Melanie Cooley, 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver, 15-year-old Susan Curtis, 23-year-old Shelley Robertson, 23-year-old Nancy Baird, and an unknown Jane Doe. Jesus Christ. Some victims' remains were discovered between two dumping sites, Taylor Mountain and a remote area in Issaquah, Washington. These sites were only 12 miles apart. Even today, there are still unidentified victims of Bundy, and there were also victims whose bodies have never been recovered. So we also discussed the topic of Ted Bundy being a necrophiliac. He would go back to these bodies and redress them, do their makeup, do their hair, and he would have sex with them until they were too putrefied to have sex with. Uh, I've been doing my best not to think about it. I'm sorry for bringing it back up. I have no choice. I'm a host on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Bundy also had a habit of decapitating his victims and keeping their skulls in his apartment. He would keep the heads and skulls of his victims as trophies. He would literally sleep right next to these heads. Jesus fucking Christ. Bundy was also often drunk throughout the majority of his murders, and he would have to revisit crime scenes to make sure he didn't leave any evidence behind. He was an evolving chameleon-type killer. He could change his physical appearance by styling his hair differently, growing his hair and his beard out, even changing his clothing style. He was very refined when it came to the tactics he would use for camouflage. Although his looks kind of aided him when it came to staying under the radar, Ted would kind of fuck all that effort he put in to stay hidden. (laughs) He'd make very bold and questionable decisions, and I mean questionable. One thing in particular that he did was use his real name. Yeah, which I still am not over that either. Like, I think I specifically commented on that in part two, whether that's a mark of how arrogant he is or whatever it may be. The fact that this man just went out there killing Introducing himself as Ted trips me the fuck out. Yeah, he made no attempts to even create a false name, like, at all. That is insane shit. He would also purposely park his VW bug away from potential witnesses. Uh, This would make it easier for him to abduct his victims. He was bold enough to abduct Janice Ott and Denise Naslin in broad daylight on the same day in the same area among 40 to 50,000 witnesses and introducing himself as his real name, which is just fucking dumb and scary. (laughs) Equally dumb and equally scary. (laughs) So we also discussed how one of Bundy's favorite ruses involved faking an injury to appear less threatening and powerful. He would often intentionally drop items in front of young women while wearing a sling or holding crutches or, like, having a cast on his arm. If someone took the bait and offered to help him, he would then ask if they could help him carry said item back to his car, which was just conveniently parked in an area with hardly any witnesses. (laughs) 
The way I know you guys can't see it, but the way you just motioned through that entire phrase just fucking sent me again physically holding my shit together. I don't know why that just sent me so bad. So when the timing was perfect, he'd quickly grab a crowbar that he would hide in the wheel well of his car and he'd attack. He purposely removed his passenger seat from his car so he could lay victims down next to him, bound and low enough inside the car as to not be seen. Fucking shit. Calculated. Very calculated. Ted attempted to abduct and murder 18-year-old Carol Duranch, but he failed. A quick recap, because this is important. He lured her to her own vehicle, claiming to be an officer, and someone tried to break into her car. Once she verified to him that nothing was amiss, he then lured her to his vehicle, claiming she needed to make a statement at the station. The drive was quiet until he pulled over and quickly handcuffed one of her wrists. A struggle ensued before he pulled out a gun and threatened to, quote, blow her head off, end quote. Oh, God. So Carol escaped, and she was able to get to the police station, and a sketch was drawn up, and a tip line was opened up to the public. So during all these abductions and murders, Ted's girlfriend of six years, Liz, was with him, completely unaware of his transgressions. She did, however, start noticing changes in him, and she slowly started piecing two and two together. Oh, I hate that. Like, I I literally couldn't imagine, like, this whole process of you slowly finding out that the love of your life and, and your person is a fucking serial killer. Like, right. Not even just a serial killer, but one of the worst serial killers to ever walk amongst humanity. Actual fun tip right quick they didn't even know what a serial killer was until ted bundy really they literally the term serial killer was coined because of this case holy shit i did not know that whoa because i think the way that they explained it was you know how episodes on tv they're called like serial is that really a thing yeah Holy shit, I did not know that because I spend all my time watching anime and YouTube. (laughs) Well, um, it was on one of those movies that I watched about Ted Bundy where they were talking about the coining of the phrase. And um, I believe she said something to the effect of anytime that you watch like an episode, they always leave you wanting more at the end. So you're never fully satisfied. So like with serial killers, they're never fully satisfied. Thus, they keep killing. Right. Wow. That actually does make sense. You learn something new every day, it seems. Right. So Liz was struggling with alcoholism and she was just unable to process her feelings of betrayal and confusion. The Ted she knew couldn't be capable of such things and she's feeling like she's betraying the man she loves because she gave his name to the police. But she trusted her gut, she reported him, and it kind of kick-started them being able to figure out who this person was. 
Wow, gotcha, so gotcha. So her actually reporting his name to the police was paramount in getting him caught. Which is a really big chunk of greater good. Like, unknowingly, she saved the lives of so many women and girls. That's just, it's fucking crazy to think about, really. Yeah. So, picking up where we left off, Liz has just reported Bundy to the tip line, and her description of him matched the description of Carol DeRanche's would-be kidnapper. She also told the police that she once found a bag of women's clothing in his room. Like a a bag? Yes. Oh, my God. On August 16, 1975, at 2.30 a.m., Sergeant Bob Hayward was patrolling an area just outside of Salt Lake County. And when he spotted the suspicious tan VW bug driving past him, it got his attention. He knew the neighborhood. He knew it very well. He knew almost all the people that lived there. And he couldn't remember ever seeing a tan VW bug there before. Suspicious. Very. Apparently... Bundy was parked outside a house, and the officer knew the parents in that house were gone, but the two teenage daughters were home. I guess the parents were gone on vacation. So he turned on his lights, he pulled up behind the car to get a better look at the license plate, and Bundy turned off the headlights and sped off. What the fuck? That doesn't look sketchy. Not at Not at all. all. (laughs) So, obviously, immediately, he starts to chase after him. Bundy sped through two stop signs before he pulled over into a gas station. So, Hayward pulled up behind Bundy's car and watched as he got out of his car and approached the police car. So, Hayward asked for his license and registration, and the registration was issued to Theodore Robert Bundy. Two more officers pull up behind them, and as Hayward was looking at the car, he noticed that the passenger seat in Bundy's car was missing. So he's quickly growing more suspicious, and with Ted's permission, the three officers inspected the VW bug. They found a crowbar, trash bags, a ski mask, rope, handcuffs, wire, and an ice pick. Holy shit. The glove compartment had gas receipts and maps that linked Ted to a list of Colorado ski resorts, including Vail and Snowmass. Do you remember from part two? Refresh me slightly. So Vail and Snowmass were the two resorts that he was localing when some of the victims disappeared from those resorts. Oh, like the, uh, was it a, a ski instructor? Yes. That, okay, I remember. I do remember. Holy shit. Got you. Got you. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but if I think of it, I'll let you know. <laughs> gotcha. Ted was immediately placed under arrest for suspicion of burglary because they thought these were burglary tools. Little and did they know. Little did they know, but they also charged him with attempting to evade. They believed... Like I said, this stuff in his possession was for burglary, not murder. So there wasn't, like, really huge, you know, oh, my God, we caught a murderer. There wasn't none of that. Right, right. They identified the problem as possible burglary, and then they thought they handled it. Right. Gotcha. Now, Ted was calm when they questioned him. 
he was turning up the charm and just easily explaining away that the mask was for skiing and he had found the handcuffs in a dumpster. Like, he bullshit his way out of this. Well, it's like you said in part one. That's kind of what fucking psychopaths do. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bundy was actually out on bail the very next day. That shit just... Because they thought it was burglary. I mean, and I get that, and that makes sense, but still, it's like, oh, I don't know. You just can't help but have this one part of your brain that's like, you guys had one of the most evil, prolific killers in your hands, and you let him fucking go. Now you understand how I felt about Edmund Kemper. Right, right, right. right. That, yeah, that's a that's another I good... I was like, oh my God, you guys had him. Right. You had him. That's another really good example. It's just, it's like you said, I know they didn't know at the time that he was killing. I mean, that's totally valid, but it's like, still, it's chilling. It's like, fuck, you guys had him. <laughs> so soon after Bundy's arrest, Utah detective Jerry Thompson began to see the connections between Ted and the assailant that attacked Carol DeRanche. The handcuffs that were found in Bundy's car were the same make and brand that her attacker used, and the car he drove was similar to the one she described. Hmm. I mean, if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's probably a fucking duck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. They also believe that he was the man responsible for the kidnapping of Melissa Smith, Laura Aim, and Deborah Kent. All these similarities between these cases are blatantly obvious at this point and impossible for the police to ignore. But at this point, they still needed more evidence. Right, right. They really, all they had was circumstantial evidence. So Thompson got a warrant and had Ted Bundy's apartment searched. They actually found a brochure of the Colorado Ski Resorts with a check by the Wildwood Inn where Karen Campbell disappeared. Holy shit. Ted confessed to keeping other souvenirs like this one to remind him of his crimes. The police that searched his apartment actually missed a whole collection of photographs that Bundy had hidden in his utility room in a lockbox. What in the hell? They missed all of it. So when Ted returned home on bail, he immediately destroyed the photos. I bet he did. Finding that brochure, though, that was the police's green light to bring Ted in for a lineup with Carol DeRanche and other bountiful witnesses there to pick him out. The other witnesses were the director of the Viewmont High School play and a friend of Debbie Kent. On October 2nd, 1975, the seven suspects, including Bundy, all walk in the room in a line, and this is where it's noted that he drastically changed his physical appearance beforehand. Of course he did, because he's a fucking psychopath. So he did this hoping that Carol wouldn't be able to recognize him, She said he looked more clean-cut, his hair was shorter, and he no longer had a mustache. Then they had him speak, and Carol was immediately like, that's the guy. Holy shit. Chills. The witnesses identified Bundy not only as Officer Roseland, 
but he was also identified as the man lurking around the night Deborah Kent disappeared. Holy shit. So a case is slowly building. Right. So Ted repeatedly professes his innocence to everyone, including Liz. But police were almost positive they had their man. So soon after he was picked out of the lineup, investigators launched a full-blown investigation into Theodore Robert Bundy. Bundy was eventually arrested and charged with the aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault of Carol DeRanche. He was held in the Salt Lake County Jail. Obviously, Liz is like, what the fuck is going on? Right. Again, I couldn't imagine, like, her whole perspective on all of this. I really, truly could not imagine. It's fucking wild to put your brain there. It really is. On September 16th, 1975... Liz was called into the King County Police Major Crime Unit building in Washington State and interviewed by detectives Jerry Thompson, Dennis Couch, and Ira Beal. She was visibly stressed out and nervous, but she was willing to offer the police any information necessary to help their case. Like, what could it hurt? If they have the right man, they can go after him, but if they have the wrong man, the investigation stops. Right, right. But she was still dealing with these feelings like she's betraying him. But at the same time, she doesn't understand what the fuck is going on. She's seeing too much come together. Right. Right. So when asked about Ted, she stated that on the nights of the murders, she couldn't account for him. She had no clue what he was up to most evenings. She also told the police that he would often sleep during the day and go out at night to places she wasn't familiar with. God. He was beginning to be very secretive. She also said that his interest in sex had waned during the last year. And when he did show interest, he pressured her into bondage. When she told Bundy that she didn't want to participate in his bondage fantasies, he'd get really pissed off. Again, not cool, Ted. Not cool. None of any of this is cool, but what the fuck? Right. You don't peer pressure your partners to doing things they don't want to do. I loved that. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> if you learn one thing today from this episode, let it be that. Do not force your partners <laughs> into things they don't want to do. Consent is important. Very important. But he'd also get very upset if she talked about cutting her hair. What? Yeah, she had dark straight parted in the middle oh my god yeah holy shit in a later interview with liz investigators also learned that ted had plaster of paris in his room to make casts she noticed that when they first began dating Holy shit, which that I'm glad you actually said that because I wanted to ask earlier when you said about the whole ruse he would use, mm -hmm. you said not only would he use crutches and have a sling, but you said like he would have cast on his arm. Yeah. And I was sitting thinking like, how in the fuck did he do that? But I didn't want to like, I didn't see it as worthy to interrupt the conversation gotcha. at the time. But yeah. now that you've said that, I want to bring that up. That makes sense. But he also had in his possession 
crutches, surgical gloves, a meat cleaver, and a bag of women's clothing. Like I said earlier, that was that was obviously a very, very big tip right there <laughs> that I wanted you guys to remember because I wrote it down twice. Right, right, right. She also noticed on a later occasion that Ted had a hatchet in his car, which was unusual. But there was something else important she remembered. She said Ted visited Lake Sammamish Park in July, where he had supposedly gone water skiing. A week after Ted had gone to Lake Sammamish Park, Janisaw and Denise Naslin were reported missing. Holy hell. So everything's really just fallen into place at this point. Right. Holy shit. So the investigators shifted their focus to Ted's former girlfriend in California, Diane. When police contacted her, she told them how he abruptly changed his behavior toward her from loving and affectionate to cruel and insensitive. The police also caught on that Ted was dating both women at the same time, and neither of them knew about each other. Ted was living a double life, which we covered that in part two. Like, all these relationships just filled with lies and betrayal. It's too fucking much. So it's coming out that there was a lot more to Ted than what investigators initially expected. Further investigation uncovered more evidence that linked him to other victims. Linda Ann Healy was linked to Bundy through a cousin of his. I wasn't able to find any information regarding that. More eyewitnesses would recognize him from Lake Sammamish Park during the time Janice Ott and Denise Naslin disappeared. And an old friend of Bundy's came forward saying that he had seen pantyhose in the glove compartment of Ted Bundy's car. Holy shit. Another friend of Bundy's had seen him with his arm in a cast when there was no record of him ever breaking his arm. What in the hell again? Suspicious. Plus, Ted spent a lot of time in the Taylor Mountains where the bodies of the victims had been found. So Bundy's credibility and claims of innocence were fucked when police discovered he purchased gas on credit cards in the towns where some of the victims had disappeared. He's just a little more than coincidence at this point being linked to everything. Yeah, so he's still professing his innocence, even at this point. And it's believed that sometime in February, Bundy abducted 17-year-old Debbie Smith in Utah. Her body was found April 1st, 1976, near the Salt Lake City Airport. He is only suspected of killing her, and no evidence has linked him to this disappearance. But her name came up among his victims, so there is that. On February 23rd, 1976... Ted was put on trial for the kidnapping of Carol Durant. He waived his right to a jury trial, basically meaning there would be no jury, just the trial itself. And Liz also was in the courtroom with him. Oh, wow. Bundy sat with a relaxed demeanor, just cool and confident that he'd be found innocent of the charges. He believed that there was no hard evidence to convict him, but he was wrong. When Carol Durant took the stand, she told the court about her ordeal that she suffered at Bundy's hands. When asked if she was able to recognize the person who attacked her, she started to cry and she pointed him out. Man, 
fuck, that is sad. She had to look at him. She had to be in the same room with him. Yeah, the heebie-jeebies. The people in the courtroom all turned and looked at Bundy, but he was staring down Carol Durant with, like, this cold stare when she pointed at him. What a fucking pig. Like, he's trying to intimidate her or some shit. My God. Later in the trial... Ted said that he had never seen Carol before, but he had no alibi on the day of the attack. Now, Bundy thought he was really going to get away with this farce that he was being set up. The police had apparently shown Carol a photo of Bundy's mugshot and driver's license before she picked him out at the lineup. However, she further identified him by this huge rip that Bundy had in Along the back of his back seat, there was like a huge rip in his car. Mm -hmm. And the police that searched the car obviously saw the rip in the back of the car. They had photographs of it. So following a week-long trial, the judge spent the weekend reviewing everything before he handed down the verdict. Two days later, on March 1st, 1976, he would find Ted Bundy to be guilty of aggravated kidnapping and was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison with the possibility of parole. And at this time, obviously, the relationship between Liz and Bundy was strained. You know, he's calling her from prison all the time. She's upset. She's delving into alcoholism, dealing with her... Internal conflict about the situation. Right, exactly. So there's just a lot going on for Liz. But while in prison, the court requested that a psychological evaluation be done on Bundy. In Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, she stated that psychologists found Bundy to be neither, quote, psychotic, neurotic, the victim of organic brain disease, alcoholic, addicted to drugs, suffering from a character disorder or amnesia, and was not a sexual deviant, end quote. The psychologist concluded that he had a, quote, strong dependency on women and deduced that that dependency was suspect, end quote. Upon further evaluation, they concluded that Ted had a, quote, fear of being humiliated in his relationships with women, end quote. As we've seen. I mean, look at what he did to Diane for fuck's sake. Exactly. And at this time, investigators began a search for evidence connecting him to the murders of Karen Campbell and Melissa Smith. Detectives discovered hair in Bundy's VW bug that were examined by the FBI and found to match Karen's and Melissa's hair. Further examination of Karen Campbell's remains showed that her skull had impressions made by a blunt instrument, and those impressions matched the crowbar that they had discovered in Bundy's car a year earlier. Holy fuck. Colorado police filed charges against Bundy on October 22nd, 1976 for the murder of Karen Campbell. In April of 1977, Ted was transferred to the Garfield County Jail in Aspen, Colorado, where he would await his trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. During the preparation process of his case in Colorado, 
Bundy became increasingly unhappy with his legal representation. He thought his lawyer was incompetent, and he eventually fired him. Like, the ego on this guy. Yeah, I was just about to actually say Jesus Christ, Ted. Since Bundy was experienced in law, being a law student and all that, he believed he could do a better job than his lawyer. Of course he did. <laughs> so of he, course he did. Right, of course he did. So he chose to represent himself. And he felt confident that he would bullshit his way out of all of this at the trial. And this trial was scheduled for November 14th, 1977. And because of the work that would be involved defending himself, he was granted permission to leave the jail from time to time so he could utilize the courthouse library to conduct research there in Aspen. Wow, okay. In May of 1977, Ted Bundy would enter his plea of not guilty to Karen Campbell's murder. On June 7, 1977, the trial for Karen Campbell was commencing, and the court was trying to decide if the death penalty would be appropriate or not. They took a recess of 15 minutes, so Ted got this bright idea to let his attorney know that he had to use the phone or, like, use the library in some capacity. He was granted permission to do what he needed to do, but no one was prepared for what would happen next. The deputy that was supposed to keep an eye on him either was distracted, as portrayed in the movie uh, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, or... My other source says that he was taking a smoke break. Either way, Ted was unsupervised, and he also wasn't handcuffed or shackled. Holy shit. So Ted motherfucking Bundy jumped from an open window on the <laughs> second story, 25 feet above the ground of the courthouse. Yeah. Oh my god, I do remember reading that, that he jumped out of a second story fucking window. Oh my god. And somehow, he landed on his feet, and he was able to just take off running. He did injure his ankle in the process of landing like he did, but as it turns out, he had been training for this moment. Holy shit, it's crazy that he didn't break his fucking legs. Right. Like, I know there's a way that you can disperse the impact like when you land and you can roll a certain way like i know there's technically a way you can do it but still jumping from two stories and not breaking your fucking legs by landing on your feet that's crazy yeah he would exercise regularly in his cell and he was described by prison guards as extremely healthy and it was portrayed in the movie Extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile that is such a long movie name <laughs> yeah it is I'm just going to call it extremely wicked if I have to reference it anymore. But he would train himself for this moment in his cell, jumping off the bunk bed or the table and landing on his feet. I was unable to find any information to support if that is 100% accurate. But either way, he was working out and he was preparing his body for that jump. And that is some scary fucking shit. He prepped his way for his escape in more ways than just one. He went further than just physically preparing. Oh, shit. There was this interview that Ted gave right before his escape. And he grew out his beard for this interview. Because he knew that people would see him on TV with the beard. And be like, okay, that's what he looks like. 
But when he escaped, he was clean shaven. He actually thought about that. So that could be another reason why he blended into the crowd a bit better and evaded arrest. No one was looking for him with a beard. That is scary. Holy so, shit. Yeah. Not only physically, but also like just physical appearance. Like I said, he was a chameleon. He was ever evolving. That he was is constantly changing. Insane that he thought to do that. And I don't know if anybody else has like picked up on that, but I certainly did. I don't like him. I've <laughs> never liked him. Trust me, I don't like him either. <laughs> After Ted jumps from this second story window, he lands and he takes off running. And well, he takes off running, but with somewhat of a limp. <laughs> he, he did hurt his ankle. <laughs> <laughs> the imagery you gave is fucking priceless. Just just trying to hobble the fuck off real quickly like elbows and assholes. Just Right, right. Just move. Gasping for fucking air. Well, since he wasn't wearing any shackles or handcuffs, he had nothing physically holding him back. Except his injured ankle. Except, except <laughs> the injured ankle. <laughs> he was also wearing normal clothing during the trial. Like... I'm gathering that this is something that they stopped doing once people started escaping, but they would actually allow people to wear something nice to go to court in. Gotcha. So, and especially since he had, you know, experience in law, he's he's always dressed nice. Gotcha, gotcha, so, gotcha. Yeah, he he was wearing normal clothing during the trial, and reports say that he even had a second change of clothing on under his outfit. So it's quite possible he stopped somewhere, changed out of the outer layer of clothes so he couldn't be identified by his clothing, and he then strolled casually through the small town toward Aspen Mountain. Holy shit, just making his way through. Right. Aspen police were quick to set up roadblocks surrounding the town. They even warned residents over the radio to stay indoors and lock their doors and windows. Holy fucking shit. Ted didn't leave the area right away, though. He waited and stayed within the city limits for the time being to lay low. He knew if he tried to bolt out of the city at this moment that he would get caught. Right, right. So he actually stopped and thought about that, too. Holy shit. The police launched a massive manhunt within the hour using scent-tracking bloodhounds, a helicopter, and 150 people on foot searching in hopes of catching Ted. But he was able to elude them for several days. He was captured five days later after spending that time in the nearby mountains and back in Aspen. He managed to make it all the way to the top of Aspen Mountain without being detected. And there he rested for two days in an abandoned hunting cabin. But get this shit. He loses his sense of fucking direction and wanders around this mountain, missing two trails that led down off the mountain. <laughs> like he was what? trying, he was trying his best to get down to the town of Crested Butte. But at one point during this trek, he came face to face with a gun-toting resident who was also one of the searchers scouring Aspen Mountain for him. But, Holy shit! But somehow. Ted bullshit his way out of the situation and managed to walk away from the encounter unscathed. That, my friend, is scary as fuck to Oh, me. yeah, it really is. I'm just sitting here in shock. 
Like, these people are searching a mountain, and then they find a man just come out of nowhere. He's like, oh, fuck. Hi, hi guys. How are you doing? They're like, oh, well, we're out here looking for a for a Ted. And he's like, well, I've, I've been walking around out here. I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him, but good luck. I hope you find him. I'm going to continue on and then there's just like what yes like my fucking brain but also like the display of his psychopathy right is fucking terrifying truly terrifying like even though we're laughing and trying to handle some anxiety it's like what the fuck that actually is really scary yeah my god they are they are looking for you they find you and you bullshit your way out of it. Like, how the fuck? <laughs> that is just fucking insane. The imagery is insane. His luck, as you will see going forward, his luck is, like, insane. It's stupid. That just absolutely... It's, it's fucking stupid. It's it... like the universe just opened up and said, well, there you go. <laughs> like... <laughs> so, while he was on the run... Ted managed to live off the food he stole from the surrounding local cabins and nearby campers. He would occasionally sleep in cabins that were abandoned. Mind you, he knows what he really needed right now was a car. Like, he couldn't hide in Aspen forever, and he needed a way to get through these police barricades. So Ted felt as if he were invincible and claimed that, quote, nothing went wrong. If something did go wrong, the next thing that happened was so good it compensated. It was even better. End quote. Holy fucking fuck. Unbelievably, Bundy actually found his ticket out of town. On June 13th, 1977, he discovered a Cadillac somewhere on this mountain with the keys left in it. What? Someone just decided that was a good idea, apparently. Let's just leave the keys in the ignition. That's fine. What in the fuck? He's on a mountain and he just finds a car? Well, there's, from what I understand, there's, like, trails and there's roads and there's houses on this mountain. I mean, okay, I got you. I got you. I guess in my mind, I'm just picturing this fucking barren mountain with no civilization. And Ted just comes up. He's like, oh, fuck, is that a car? Like, I just found a fucking car. Like, that, oh my god, the imagery is too much in this one. It's taken my brain to some fucking crazy places. (laughs) But Ted's luck wouldn't last long. He was spotted in this stolen vehicle trying to flee Aspen. He had driven back into Aspen, and he could have gotten away, but two police officers noticed this fucking Cadillac with dim headlights weaving back and forth in and out of the lane so they pulled Bundy over like, Ted, what the fuck are you doing? Well, it sounds like something really good didn't happen to compensate the bad after that. (laughs) Not that I'm rooting for him because I'm not, but you'd think if you took all that time and trouble to get out of custody and get the fuck out of there, like, why the crazy erratic behavior? Like, why wouldn't you just blend in? Right. He drew too much attention to himself. He did. So, of course, they immediately recognized him and took him back to jail at a facility in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And on June 15th, 1977, he was charged with his escape, burglary, and felony theft. From that point on, he was ordered to wear handcuffs 
and shackles while conducting his research at the library in Aspen. But Bundy wouldn't give up so easily. He was working on a new escape plan. My God. When Bundy's Aspen trial judge ruled on December 23, 1977, that the Karen Campbell murder trial would start on January 9, 1978, and change the venue to Colorado Springs, Ted then realized that he had to make his escape before he was transferred out. Almost seven months later, he attempted to escape again, but this time he was successful. Ted acquired a hacksaw blade, which he later claimed he got from another inmate, and $500 in cash. He was also purposely losing weight. On the night of December 30th, 1977, Ted sawed a small opening in the ceiling through a light fixture opening, then crawled up into the ceiling of the Garfield County Jail and made his way to another part of the building. Holy shit. He managed to find another opening in the ceiling that led down into the linen closet of a jailer's apartment. He sat and waited until he knew the apartment was empty, but with Ted's stupid fucking luck, the jailer and his wife were out enjoying their evening. They weren't even home. So Ted steals some of the jailer's clothes, then just casually walks out the front door to his freedom. My God. His escape would go unnoticed until the following afternoon, more than 15 hours later. Holy shit. That is fucking crazy. Right. So this motherfucker's luck is just crazy. Like, he laid books and files and some other belongings onto his bed and covered it with a blanket to make it appear as if he were in the bed sleeping. Oh, holy fuck. He's the oldest trick in the book, How and it worked. anyone fell for that is astonishing, especially since books have, like, those sharp, cornered edges and hard surfaces. And... Yeah, books are definitely not human-shaped. Right. That is so, just fucking insane. Again, the oldest, cheesiest trick in the book, and it fucking worked. So how in... How? How? This is fucking insane. Also, side note, an informant that was in the prison told the guards that he heard Bundy moving around the ceiling at night, several nights before his escape, but the matter was not investigated. What? Yep. Okay, like, at this point... Is it really Ted's quote-unquote amazing luck or just the fucking incompetence of the police? Like, I mean, or both? I mean, both, Maybe probably. a combination of both, because Jesus Christ, why would that not be followed up? Like I said, it's just like the universe opened up and was like, well, here you go. Here's mm. your path. My God. You get out this way, this is the exit. My fucking God. You know? So by the time police learned of his escape, Ted was already well on his way to Chicago, and this was one of the few stops that he made along the route to Florida. He arrived in Chicago, then he caught an Amtrak train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he got a room at the YMCA. On January 2nd, 1978, he went to a bar in Ann Arbor where he stayed to watch a fucking football game. Holy shit. So he's just out there living life? Right. Oh, my God. He steals a car in Ann Arbor, which he would later abandon in Atlanta, Georgia. No shit. Yep. 
Then he boards a bus for Tallahassee, Florida and arrives in Florida on January 8th. 1978. So Ted rents a room at a boarding house under the alias Chris Hagen, and he jumps right back in to commit numerous petty crimes like shoplifting, purse snatching, and even auto theft as well. He allegedly stole a student ID card that belonged to a Kenneth Misner and sent it away for copies of Kenneth's social security card and birth certificate. I have no more information regarding that though. That's still fucking insane that he did that. Yeah, which I I don't really understand because why would you send off for someone else's information and then end up not really using it until later, I guess? I don't know. It doesn't really make sense to me. Either way, it's fucking scary that he was able to acquire the shit. Right, but I'll, I'll explain how he uses it here in a minute, but... He grew a mustache and allegedly drew on a fake mole on his right cheek when he went out. But aside from that, he made no real attempt at disguising himself. He tried to find work at a construction site, but when he was asked for his driver's license, Ted left. (laughs) This was his only attempt to find a job. Gotcha. But see, that's what that's what I was saying is I don't understand why if he sent off for this person's driver's license and all that other stuff, why would you just walk away if you had a job prospect? I don't know. Maybe he got paranoid. Maybe. Like maybe, who knows? I don't know, but my brain is in full speculation. <laughs> so anyway, Ted was enjoying his newfound freedom in a place that knew little to nothing about him or his past. He started to feel comfortable in his new environment near Florida State University. He spent much of his free time walking around FSU's campus, ducking into classes unnoticed, and listening in on lectures on occasion. When he wasn't wandering around campus, he would spend time in his apartment watching the television he had stolen. Nice. Theft became second nature to him at this point. Almost everything in his apartment was something he stole. Even his food. Like, he would buy his food off of stolen credit cards and things of that nature. Holy fucking shit. But the evil that was inside of him was festering at this point. The compulsion of murder had reached a point to where it was just unbearable for him. He had two and a half years of repressed homicidal violence just brewing holy fucking shit that made my stomach just like queasy now we're gonna discuss the Kai Omega house oh god this is the Kai Omega murders and it is extremely graphic um just prepare yourself for that one. Oh my god i'm not ready on the night of saturday january 15th 1978 Ted was drinking at a nightclub called Sherrod's, which was close to the Chi Omega sorority house. But Bundy stuck out like a sore thumb because of his age and his appearance. He's a 31-year-old trying to pick up college chicks. That's creepy. Right, right. And he was also being ultra creep about it, too. According to witnesses, he spent most of the night standing by himself. He was just standing there menacingly (laughs) (laughs) he's just standing there holy shit staring at all these young women that are in the club gross and he also appeared to be spaced out at points 
So he's overwhelmed with his urge to sexually assault and brutalize his first victim in two years, and it became so strong that it obviously started to cloud his judgment. He was drunk, desperate, and in a heightened state of excitement as he was surrounded by potential targets. So he begins to become fully unhinged, and he decides to enter a sorority house that was full of potential witnesses and assault multiple women in a very short space of time. It's risky. Holy Like, it's a very shit. risky move. So it's believed that he scoped the Chi Omega house out beforehand and found the door to be unlocked. So that's how he decided which sorority he was going to choose, I guess. Holy fucking shit, man. Most of the sisters at Chi Omega were out dancing or at keg parties on campus. It wasn't unusual for these sisters to stay out late since there was no curfew. In fact, it was pretty normal for the girls to return in the early morning hours the next day. Right. You know, regular college skullduggery shit. Right, right. <laughs> at 3 a.m., Bundy waited quietly outside the Chi Omega house until he was sure the occupants inside were asleep. And now he was ready to make his move. He armed himself with a log from outside and brought it with him. A fucking log? Yeah, like, from what I'm gathering, it's like, not a big, big log, but like, you know, like a, like a branch, like a thick branch. Jesus Christ, though, like, what the fuck? Yeah, mind you, everything I'm about to tell you all happened in the span of 15 minutes. Oh my god, okay. This is a very violent, brutal, and unhinged attack. Ooh, my nerve. <laughs> 21-year-old Margaret Bowman died in her bed because Ted Bundy beat her skull in with the log. He then took nylon stockings and wrapped it around her throat, and he pulled the stockings so tight around her neck that it almost broke her neck. Stockings? Her yes. He almost broke her neck with stockings. Her throat was constricted to half the size and diameter. What the f- Oh my god. Holy shit. She had been beaten so severely that her skull was splintered and a portion of her brain was exposed. Then- he moved into the next room where 20-year-old Lisa Levy was sleeping. She was the first girl that the officers found dead. Pathologists who later performed the autopsy on her found that she had been beaten on the head with a log, raped, and strangled. Upon further examination, they discovered two distinct bite marks on her butt cheek and one on her nipples. He bit Lisa's nipple so hard, he almost severed it. From the rest of her breast. From biting it? Yes. Holy fucking shit. Her collarbone was broken just from sheer brute force. And she had also been sexually assaulted with a hairspray bottle. Oh my god! After murdering Margaret and Lisa, Bundy crept into another room where he bludgeoned two co-eds, 21-year-old Kathy Kleiner and 21-year-old Karen Chandler. These two survived the attack. Side note, their beds were so close together that Bundy was basically able to club both of them at the same time. Oh my fucking God. Kathy Kleiner was beaten mercilessly. Her jaw was broken in three different places. There were multiple lacerations on her face and head, and her right cheek was ripped open. 
Oh my god, I'm assuming from being bit? Um, no, no. I think her right cheek was ripped open from the force of the log on her face. Holy fucking shit, either way, this is absolutely barbaric. She was found sitting in her bed, and she had no memory whatsoever of the attack, and to this day, she still has no memory of it. Karen Chandler was also beaten and suffered a fractured skull, a shattered jaw, and some of her teeth were missing. Karen was found in the hallway delirious and confused. Oh my god. Which I'm also going to add more details to this as we go along. So this is just bare bones at the moment. Gotcha, gotcha. A little after 3 a.m., Nita Neary was dropped off at the sorority house after a date by her boyfriend after attending a keg party on campus. When she reached the door to the house, she noticed it was standing wide open. As she entered the building, she heard movement as if someone was running in the rooms above her. Then the footprints get louder as they approach the staircase near her. So she quickly hid in a doorway out of view. She saw a man with a knit blue cap pulled over his eyes, holding a bloody log, running down the stairs and out the door. Oh my god, bro. Nita's first thought was that the sorority house had been robbed. She immediately ran up the stairs to wake her roommate, Nancy. Nita told her of the strange man she saw leaving the house, and unsure of what to do, the girls made their way to the house mother's room. But before they were able to make it to her room, they saw Karen staggering down the hall. Her entire head was soaked with blood. So as Nancy went to help Karen, Nita went and woke up the house mother and the two of them went to check on another roommate nearby. They found Kathy in her room alive, but in a horrible state. She was also covered in blood that was seeping from open wounds on her head. Just about every bone had been broken in her face. Her jaw was hanging to one side. Oh my god. As oh the, my fuck. As the jaw had been completely detached from the joint on one side. Her jaw was broken in three places, as I said earlier, and several of her teeth were broken as well. They were broken and missing. Oh my god, this is fucking horrible. So hysterical, of course, Nancy ran to the phone and called the police. Later in court, Kathy Kleiner said, quote, I was in my bed now, screaming for help, yelling for help, and all I was doing was making a gurgling sound, end quote. Oh, my. Oh, holy fucking fuck. Fuck. As Officer Crew stepped into the house, he said the girls started yelling upstairs, upstairs, and there was a lot of crying. Police later found Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy dead in their rooms, lying in their beds. There were no signs of a struggle in any of the rooms. Oh my fucking God. Investigators who interviewed the survivors learned nothing. None of the girls had any memory of the events. The only witness was Nita Neary, who was able to catch a profile of the killer as he fled. Oh my God. Now, after leaving the Chi Omega house... Bundy was spotted by another man further down the street walking with this log in hand. He what then, the fuck? Yeah, he still had the log on him and he's walking down the street in like a irate manner. Horror a movie manner. shit. Right. 
He then broke into another home just eight blocks away from Chi Omega, belonging to 21-year-old Florida State University student Cheryl Thomas. He entered her basement apartment where he found her in her room and attacked her. It was so violent that it woke up both of her housemates, Debbie Siccarelli and her roommate, Nancy Young. There were loud banging noises and moans and whimpers coming through the wall. Oh my fucking god. The thumping sound of her head hitting the wall was heard throughout the entire house. Oh my god. I'm guessing it's sort of like a duplex because they were saying that the wall between them was like very thin. They could hear the thumping and the whimpers and the moans and everything through the wall. That is absolutely fucking chilling. Like, my God, the brutality of all of this is just fucking wild. I am stunned. So when they tried to call Cheryl's apartment and she didn't answer, that's when they immediately called the police. Right. Because they could hear the phone ringing through the wall. Oh, my God. So all of that combined with... They can hear all of it. Yeah, the thumping and then the not answering of the phone that, yeah, something's definitely fucking wrong. She suffered multiple skull fractures, a broken jaw, and her shoulder was dislocated. He then masturbated on her bed and escaped before the authorities arrived. What in the fuck? Cheryl survived the attack. What? Yes, she survived the attack. The police came quickly because they were just blocks away at the Chi Omega house, tending to that crime scene. Police entered Cheryl's apartment and walked to her bedroom where they found her sitting on the bed. Her face was just beginning to swell from the beating. She was still somewhat conscious, half nude, and obviously in shock. Cheryl was left permanently scarred, losing her hearing in one ear and cranial nerve damage that will forever affect her equilibrium. Jesus, how sad. Cheryl was a dancer. And this ended her dancing career. So it ruined her fucking life, basically. Yes. Oh my god, I I hate that. I hate all of this. Police discovered a mask at the foot of her bed. And according to Ann Rule in The Stranger Beside Me, the mask that was found, quote, resembled almost exactly the mask taken from Ted Bundy's car when he had been arrested in Utah in August of 1975, end quote. Oh my fucking god. Police investigators worked on what evidence was left behind. Unfortunately, most of the evidence was proven to be inconclusive, but they were able to get a blood type, sperm samples, and fingerprint smudges. The only firm evidence investigators had were the hairs found in the mask and teeth impressions from the bite marks on Lisa Levy and an eyewitness account from Nita Neary. Let's not forget that. Right, right. Investigators did not have a suspect, and Ted Bundy was unknown to them. This was in Florida, like way away from everything else, so no one had a clue. Right, right. not to mention, Ted's M.O. changed. So they weren't going to be able to link Ted to the crime from M.O. alone. Right, right. That kind of makes sense, because in these cases, he's breaking in. And doing this versus abducting people and taking them away. Yeah, he's not using these lures to bring people in anymore. He's in a frenzied state. I'm just going to go out and get my satisfaction. And then... Holy fucking shit. He's basically saying, fuck all of my processes and ways of doing things. I just have to do it and I have to do it now. Right. Wow, that actually makes a lot of sense. Kay thinks I fucking hate it. (laughs) 
face right now, bitch. Like, holy fucking shit. On February 6, 1978, Ted stole a van and drove to Jacksonville, where he was spotted in the act of trying to abduct a schoolgirl. A strange man in a white van got out and approached a 14-year-old girl as she waited for her brother to pick her up. He claimed he was from the fire department and asked her if she attended the school nearby. Red flags are waving for her because she found it strange that an on-duty fireman was wearing plaid pants and a navy jacket. Right, right. She began to feel really uncomfortable. She had been warned by her father, who was the chief of detectives for the Jacksonville Police Department, not to talk to strangers. So she was on high alert at this point. So thankfully, her brother shows up and he's immediately suspicious of the man. So he ordered her into the car, followed the man back to the van, and wrote down his license plate to give to his father. Like... Good fucking job, dude. Good job. Holy fucking shit. Right, right. You're protecting your sister and catching a madman. Like We love to hear it. Love we to see it. it. Detective James Parmenter. I'm sorry if I butchered that. He's the kids' dad. He had the license plate checked out, and he learned that it belonged to a man named Randall Reagan, and he decided to pay him a visit. Like, I would fucking too. Right. Not only as an officer, but like... Uh, you're, I linked you to this van, and this van, this dude tried to pick up my kids, so what's up? Right, you right. You know? Like, that's how I would be. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> if you're feeling froggy, then leap. Right, so Randall told James that his plates had been stolen, and he had already been issued new ones. James later found out that the van his kids had seen was also stolen, and he had an idea who it might have been. So he decided to take his children to the police station to show them a stack of mug shots. Bundy's picture was among them. He hadn't realized how close he had been to losing his own daughter because both of his children recognized the man in the van as Ted Bundy. Oh my fucking God, Jills. Three days later on February 9th, 1978, Lake City Police received a phone call from the distressed parents of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. They were hysterical and said that their daughter had disappeared that day. Oh, my God. Kimberly disappeared from a schoolyard in the middle of the school day. Bundy had traveled there to Lake City from Jacksonville and spotted the junior high school student. Police launched a massive search to find Kimberly. The last person to see her was her friend Priscilla, who saw Kimberly get into the car of a stranger the day she disappeared. What in the hell, just in the middle of a school day? Yeah. Unfortunately, she was unable to remember the car or the driver. Bundy kidnapped, raped, and murdered 12-year-old Kimberly and discarded <sighs> her body in a pig pen 40 miles outside the city. In a fucking pig pen. Police found Kimberly's body eight weeks later in Suwannee County, Florida. Oh, my God. She was a fucking child. Yeah. Like a baby. What in the fuck? Happy that you are dead. Executed. <laughs> no longer of this earth. Into the next realm. Away from humanity. Banished never to, to the hurt. shadow realm. Yes, banished to the shadow realm. Never to harm anyone again. Jesus fucking Christ, I hate this. I know. I hated it, too. Now you understand my frustration, like... 
why I was the way that I was today. Where right, I was like, right, we're right. gonna go get Dollar Scoop, and we're gonna go, we're gonna shave our heads, and we're gonna have a good time <laughs> because I was, I was reaching a manic point with this episode where I was like, I need a distractor. I need a distractor. I love it. Holy shit! <laughs> I swear, man. Oh like, my it's goodness! Just, God. So. Kimberly's body provided very little information due to advanced decomposition. However, police would later find the evidence they needed in a van driven by Ted Bundy. Dun, dun, dun. Right. By this time, Ted set out towards Pensacola, Florida in a new stolen car. And this time, he managed to find a vehicle he was more comfortable driving. Can you guess? Oh, my God. Don't tell me it's another Volkswagen bug. It's another Volkswagen bug. Holy shit. Did I really just guess it correctly? It's another Volkswagen bug, baby. Shut the fuck up. It's another Volkswagen (laughs) bug. (laughs) Holy fucking shit. I cannot believe I was actually right about that. I was just, I was literally just guessing. Why would you pick the same freaking vehicle? Mm-mm-mm. What are you doing? It was a fucking thinking, Ted. Well, I wanted to say this is illegal activity uh, to its finest, but now, Ted, like, I'm starting to question. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to fucking question. Ted, you're supposed to be this notorious serial killer. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> right? Jesus God. I'm literally in tears. It's like fucking amateur hour over here. The way you literally said, what the fuck are you doing? Good God. I almost just threw up. (laughs) So at 1.34 a.m. on February 15th, 1978, Officer David Lee of the Pensacola Police Department was patrolling an area in West Pensacola when he saw an orange VW bug loitering and driving erratically back at it again with the erratic driving dead i'm wondering if he was like driving drunk because that's the only explanation that i could i know that he committed most of his crimes while he was drunk so i'm wondering if he's just out here in the streets with you know a water bottle of vodka or something either way like come on Ted. come on once again like what happened in utah several years earlier bundy started to flee But this time, Bundy pulled over and stopped. Officer Lee ordered him out of his car and told Bundy to lay down with his hands in front. Ted listened and complied, but catching Lee's surprise as he begun to handcuff Bundy, he rolled over and began to fight back at Lee. What the fuck? Although, another source says that Bundy refused to give his name, so Lee started questioning him, and then Ted kicked Lee's legs out from under him and ran. Either way, Bundy managed to fight his way free and run. What? And yeah. This man is fucking scary. But just as soon as he did, Lee fired his weapon at him. Bundy dropped to the ground, pretending to have been shot. And as the officer approached him lying on the ground, he was again attacked by Bundy. This is fucking insane. Yeah. This is fucking insane. So he... Let me just make sure I heard that shit right. And then there was a struggle over the officer's gun, but the officer in the end was able to overpower him and he handcuffed him and took him to the police station. Holy fucking shit. So fought the dude not only once, but twice. 
and not even just fought him twice, but the second time he pretended to be injured specifically to lure this man closer to him. And then when he gets there, I just picture Bundy jumping out of the trunk, like jumping like that guy in the trunk on the hangover. Yeah. That's all I see. And it's just like, this is fucking insane. This I mean, is literally fucking insane. What I mean, kind of crazy really, shit is this? He's really starting to show that natural behavior of predators. They will act weak to lure you in, and that way they get the advantage when they attack. That's what right. the fuck psychopaths do. Right, right. The, uh, the moral of this three-parter, that's what the fuck psychopaths do. Right. Jesus Christ. At his booking, Bundy gave officers a stolen ID and said that he was an FSU student named Kenneth Meisner. As Officer Lee took the unknown man to jail, he said, quote, I wish you had killed me, end quote. Like Ted said that? Ted said that. <laughs> oh my fuck. Once Bundy was identified by his fingerprints on February 17th, it turned out that Officer David Lee had apprehended one of the suspects on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, Theodore Robert Bundy. He was immediately transported to Tallahassee and subsequently charged with the Tallahassee and Lake City murders. He was later taken to Miami to stand trial for the Kyomega murders. Photographs of the bite marks on Lisa Levy were taken. If Ted's teeth matched the bite marks, it would be undeniable proof that he was there. Investigators asked Bundy to consent to a bite mark mold, and he refused. Of course he did, because he knows. He knows they're about to... He knows. He knows. He knows. He knows. I know you know. (laughs) They're about to get his ass. They're right. So they tried coming up with creative ways to get the impression so they started sending fruit into his cell with (laughs) his food they were hoping that he would bite in like they would send an apple in and they were hoping that they would get the bite impression off the apple right in order to match it to the victim that is some crazy shit but once bunty caught on because everybody else isn't getting fruit (laughs) everybody else isn't getting fruit no just ted bundy's getting fruit so he stopped eating it he caught on so quickly bitch you just you send me i'm so sorry so investigators were like all right bet and they went to a judge to have a warrant drawn up. For his... For his teeth. For his bite mark. Ted was then bum-rushed in his cell by men holding him still and getting his mouth open so they could get photos and a plaster cast of his teeth. So they just took it by force. Well, at first, they started taking it by force. And then Ted Bundy kind of switched the situation around. And he stopped struggling and was like, you know I'm not a violent person. You're fucking kidding me. I'm not me. kidding. That just, again, wait, wait. Hold on one second. I can't <laughs> find my fucking asshole. I don't think I ever found it after part two. And if I did find it and didn't realize it, it is now fucking gone. We need a bolo out for your asshole. We really fucking do. What do you mean, Ted, that you're not a violent person, bro? Right. What the fuck? Right. So over the months following Bundy's arrest, investigators were also able to compile critical evidence against Bundy in Kimberly Leach's case. The stolen white van that Bundy was driving was found, and three eyewitnesses saw him driving it the afternoon Kimberly disappeared. 
Forensic tests conducted on the van provided fibers that came from Bundy's clothes. So they got him right. with the van. Further tests revealed that Kimberly's blood was on the van's carpet and semen was found on Kimberly's underwear that matched Ted's DNA. Further evidence was Ted's shoe impressions in the soil located next to the spot where Kimberly's body was found. Police felt 100% confident with the information they had gathered up until this point, and there was a mountain of damning evidence connecting Bundy to the murder of Kimberly Leach. Oh my God. April 12, 1978 was the official date that 12-year-old Kimberly Leach's remains were discovered in Swanee State Park. She was just a child. And before her life could ever begin, it was brutally snatched away from her by Ted Bundy. Oh, my fuck. Kimberly man. was Ted's youngest and final victim. Ted Bundy would go on to face two murder trials, both spaced between three years. His first trial date was set for June 25, 1979 in Miami, Florida. And this case was pertaining to the brutal murders of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy and the attempted murders of Cheryl Thomas, Kathy Kleiner, and Karen Chandler. The second trial was to take place in January of 1980 in Orlando, Florida, where Ted was to be tried for the murder of Kimberly Leach. Both trials would result in well-deserved, fucked outcomes for Ted. However, the Kyomega murder case would be the one to seal the deal fate-wise. In May of 1979, Ted rejected a plea deal that would have allowed him to avoid the death penalty if he had admitted to murdering Bowman, Levy, and Leach. Bundy went to trial for the Kyomega murders in June 1979 with Dade County Circuit Court Judge Edward D. Cowart presiding. He was prosecuted by Assistant State Attorney Larry Simpson. The opening of the Kyomega murder trial sparked immense public interest and a media frenzy. Bundy's trial for the Kyomega murders was the first trial to be nationally televised. Oh, shit. Was the first ever trial to wow. be televised. Ted was suspected of at least 36 murders in at least four states, and his name would evoke nightmarish images to thousands, perhaps even millions around the world. Oh, my fucking God. He was considered by many to be evil incarnate, a monster, the devil, the boogeyman, and his murders brought forth the biggest and most publicized trials of the decade. This was like a huge ordeal. Despite having five court-appointed attorneys, Ted acted as his own defense attorney. You remember when we were talking about Eileen Warnos, how like she was given none of this? Right, right. He it, had five court-appointed attorneys. That's that fucking, in. it's fucking insane. It is absolutely fucking insane. So he was overconfident in his abilities, remembering how he felt untouchable. Right. He believed he was going to defend himself and get away with it. Of course he did. But the jury took notes and it became really clear to them early on that Ted was fighting a losing battle. But that's what's crazy to me. Ted even cross-examined witnesses. So he's talking to the witnesses and survivors of the crimes that he committed. My fucking God, I could not imagine that. I seriously could not fucking imagine that. One of the Chi Omega survivors, Kathy Kleiner, was quoted saying, quote, When it was my turn to go up and sit in the witness stand, 
I looked out and there was Bundy sitting at the defense table. I stared him down in the eyes. I don't remember what the questions were. I felt like I had power now. He was on the other side of that table and I was okay. I didn't want him to think at all that he had any power anymore. End quote. Holy fucking shit. How powerful. Holy fuck. That actually just chicken legs. It gave me chicken legs. So the whole thing about him cross-examining these witnesses, he is actually doing what serial killers fucking do and revisiting the scene of the crime by asking questions and they have to answer it under oath. Do you see how fucked that is? Yeah, now that you point that out, that actually is kind of fucking really twisted and extreme. He was getting some kind of sick pleasure out of it, and that's, yeah, that is scary. I actually didn't really point that out till you made it blatantly clear, but that is, that is fucked. That is super fucked. Everything about Ted Bundy is super fucked. Super fucked. So allegedly, when Kathy Kleiner was cross-examined by Bundy, she would only give yes or no answers because she refused to talk about her experience in the attack to the man who attacked her. Oh my fucking God. And he tried to keep his cool because he had all these eyes on him, but he eventually exploded and slammed his fist down on the table and yelled, you have to fucking answer me. What? In the courtroom, he wigs his fucking shit. And she's like, yep, there's the monster right there. Oh, my. Like, badass. Oh, my fucking God. Well, in that case, I'm really happy that she aggravated the fuck out of him. Because had he not done that, I mean, people are, like you said, the jury was already taking notes. People were seeing more and more that his facade was crumbling. But still, had he not actually shown a display of how he can, like, switch. Instantly. It maybe would have been a lot, you know, if not less likely than harder for anyone to imagine him being capable of doing what he was being accused of doing. Right. But if he was cool, calm and collected throughout the whole entire thing, then it would make you wonder, hmm, did he really do it? He would have had something else in his favor. So in that note, that is fucking insane. Also, I would be scared shitless. Right. Ted motherfucking Bundy screaming at you. Yeah. Fuck that. And the next thing, point C, still haven't found my asshole. (laughs) It took a left turn at Albuquerque. (laughs) It's never coming back. It is never coming back. That's going to have to be a Hometown Legends episode for us, the disappearance of my asshole. Nancy Drew and the disappearing asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. So there were two events in the trial that turned the jury against Ted, as if that wasn't enough. But the first was Nita Neary's testimony of what she saw the night of the murders. While on the stand, she pointed Ted out as the man she saw fleeing down the stairs and out the door. The second event was the testimony of odontologist Dr. Richard Souvron. He described the bite marks. And as he spoke, the jury was shown full-scale photographs of the bite marks that had been taken the night of the murder. Suvron pointed out the uniqueness of the indentations left behind on the victim and compared them with full-scale pictures of Ted's teeth. There was no question whatsoever that Ted made these bite marks. 
Oh my God, chills, bro. The photos would be the biggest piece of evidence the prosecution had linking Ted to the crime. And the whole time while they're sitting there looking at these photos of the teeth impressions and stuff, Bundy's just sitting there just fully fascinated. Just fully fascinated in what's going on. Oh my fucking God, man. Psychopath of the highest fucking caliber. After a whole month of deliberation for the jury, Bundy was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults. Oh, and two counts of burglary. Ted sat and listened on with no emotion whatsoever as the verdict was read. No emotion. Just sat there blankly. My God. In the state of Florida, it's customary to have a separate sentencing trial. And Ted's sentencing took place one week later on July 30th, 1979, before this same jury that had found him guilty. During this brief hearing, Ted's mother, Louise, tearfully testified and pleaded for her son's life. Ted was also given a chance to address the court and show that the recommendation from the prosecution for the death penalty was wrong. Ted continued to profess his innocence, claiming that the prejudice of the media was responsible for this alleged misrepresentation. He also claimed that the entire proceedings and verdicts were bogus because he was unable to accept the fact that he had been found guilty. Ted told the hushed courtroom that it was, quote, absurd to ask for mercy for something he did not do, end quote. And what he the would fuck. And he would, quote, not share the burden of the guilt, end quote. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. What do you mean, Ted? What the fuck do you mean? Yeah. Holy fuck. So Judge Cower handed down his final judgment following Ted's statement. He affirmed the recommendation and imposed the death penalty twice for the murders of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. The method of execution Ted faced was the electric chair. After confirming the sentence, Cowart gave him the verdict. And this is, the following is what the judge said to Ted Bundy. It is ordered that you be put to death by a current of electricity. That current be passed through your body until you are dead. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself, please. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity as I've experienced in this courtroom. You're a bright young man. You have made a good lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. Take care of yourself. I don't feel any animosity toward you. I want you to know that. Once again, take care of yourself. End quote. Oh, my fucking God, the chills. Fucking shit. That was equally moving, equally powerful, and equally fucking sad to me. I don't know why. That just, I can't describe what that made me feel. Yeah. That is fucking insane. After many delays, the Leach trial began in Orlando, Florida at the Orange County Courthouse on January 7th, 1980. And this time, Ted decided not to represent himself. Instead, he handed over the responsibility to defense attorneys Julius Africano and Lynn Thompson. Their strategy was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. A risky plea, but one of the few available options open to Bundy at this point. 
Right. The plea of insanity might not have been difficult for the jury to believe. Unlike the other hearings where he was calm and collected, Ted became increasingly agitated throughout this trial. And at one point, he even lost control and stood up yelling at a witness who he disagreed with. What in the literal fuck, Ted? Now, I'm unsure if this instance that they're talking about is indeed the instance where he slammed his fist down on the table. So, I don't know if this is two separate occurrences, but either way, his true self is being shown to the court. Right, right. Writers Mashad and Ainsworth stated that Ted was just barely able to control himself. Quote, expending huge amounts of energy just to keep from blowing apart, end quote. It was becoming clear that Ted's facade of confidence was beginning to crack, and probably because he realized that he was fucked. Right, it was finally over. Assistant State Attorney Bob Deckel presented 65 witnesses that connected Ted, either directly or indirectly, with Kimberly Leach on the day of her disappearance. 65 witnesses. One of the star witnesses saw a man that looked like Ted leading an upset little girl matching Kimberly's description into a white van in front of the girl's school. But the defense team argued the legitimacy of the testimony because the witness wasn't able to recall the precise day he had seen the man and the little girl. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, I was about to say, what the fuck? Deckel continued to bring forth convincing evidence. The most damaging was the fiber evidence, which linked Ted's clothes and the van he drove that day to the crime scene, like I was telling you earlier. Right. Fibers matching those from Kimberly Leach's clothes were found in the van and on Ted's clothing that he had allegedly worn on the day of the crime. The prosecution's expert witness, who testified about the fiber analysis, stated that she believed at some point Ted and Kimberly Leach had been in contact around the time of her death. Michaud and Ainsworth claimed that the testimony had been, quote-unquote, literally fatal to Ted's case. Holy shit. Exactly one month following the opening of the trial, Judge Wallace Joplin asked the jury to deliberate. On February 6th, after less than seven hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a guilty verdict. The verdict was immediately followed by, quote, Jubilation from the prosecution team and their supporters, end quote. February 9th, 1980 marked the second anniversary of Kimberly Leach's death. It also was the day that the sentencing trial commenced on her case. During the penalty phase of the trial, I'm gathering he took over his defense team at this point, but Ted called for Carol Ann Boone to be a witness. During his questioning of Carol, he asked her to marry him. What? That totally caught me off guard. Wait, so what? So do you remember Carol Boone that I was telling you about that used to be his co-worker? Yes. Yeah. So at some point in this trial, he took over and he was able to cross-examine again. Okay. From what I understand. There, was, there wasn't a whole lot of information in this area. So, you know, stick with me. But he ended up calling Carol Boone up to the witness stand to testify on his behalf. While she was on the stand, he proposed, he to, proposed her. to her. Like legitimately proposed. Like legitimately proposed. Holy fucking shit. Like All right, how, Ted. 
How fucking self-absorbed can you be? Right. You're on trial for the murder of a child, and this is the time you propose? What in the literal fuck? Did she say yes? She followed up with, I do hereby marry you. Like, bitch, do you not understand what the fuck is going on here? Do you not know where you're at right now? That is literally insane. I don't even know what to say to that, honestly. That just took me way off guard. So, according to Florida law, the verbal promise made under oath was enough to seal the agreement and they were considered officially married. Because they both said that they would marry each other under oath. Oh my fucking god. Okay, cool. Shortly thereafter... The groom, Mr. Ted Bundy, was sentenced to death in the electric chair for the third time in under a year. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I actually, again, I had to just hold it together because it's how you just gave this spiel about like, yeah, he brought her up. He proposed to her. She says yes. And then you were like, then he was sentenced to fucking death by the electric chair. (laughs) This is not a happy moment for him, and it will never be a happy moment for him. And it shouldn't be. He doesn't deserve it. Exactly. I'm just, it's just how. Especially the disrespect that you are proposing to someone on a murder trial for a 12-year-old little girl that you fucking murdered. Yeah, that absolutely is enraging. It's just how you how you transitioned from the wedding thing to his sentence just fucking sent me. I can't explain it. Well, Mr. Ted Bundy got a chance to spend his honeymoon alone on death row in Florida State's Rayford Penitentiary. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy your honeymoon, motherfucker. Like Okay, <laughs> hmm. thanks. Bye. <laughs> Oh my god, I feel you, I feel you. Following numerous conjugal visits between Bundy and his new wife, Carol Boone gave birth to a daughter in October 1982. Wow. Yeah. Ted refused to give up. He had a wife and a daughter now, and he truly believed that he still had a fighting chance to save his skin. And if you're wondering what happened to Liz, after he went on trial for Carol Durant's kidnapping... Mm -hmm. She was like, what the fuck, dude? I'm out. Good. Good for her. You know, well, it was around that time of the Carol, the Carol Durant's trial or the Kai Omega trial. It was one of the two, but she was basically like, she was done. I'm gonna head out. I just think it's really disgusting that he's sitting here concerned with getting free and wanting to have a life because he now has a daughter. You know who else had a fucking daughter? All of the parents of the girls you fucking killed. Well, yes. Yes. That's who else had a daughter. But, you know, Liz also had a daughter, too. Right. So he went from one little perfect happy family setting. To another. To another. And it's fucking disgusting. With no regard to either or. Either. It's like, fucking no regard. sick. It's just fucking sick. And then with the current matter at hand... Kimberly Leach's parents also had a fucking child, you sick fuck. Yeah. So, like, I don't like this. Fuck you, Ted Bundy. He truly believed that he still had a fighting chance to save his skin. And in 1982, he enlisted the help of a new lawyer and appealed the Chi Omega murder trial verdict to the Florida Supreme Court. Thankfully, this appeal was eventually denied. Good. Shortly following the court's denial of a new hearing for the Chi Omega murders, Ted decided to appeal the Kimberly Leach verdict. Of course he fucking did. 
In October of 1984, Bundy contacted former King County homicide detective Bob Keppel and offered his assistance in the ongoing search for the Green River Killer by providing his own insights and analysis. I don't even want to get into the fucking Green River Killer. I hate Gary Ridgway. We're not even going to we're not even going to bring him into this. Keppel and Green River Task Force detective Dave Reichardt traveled to Florida Death's Row to interview Bundy. Both detectives later stated that these interviews didn't actually help in the investigation, but they provided a deeper insight into Bundy's mind instead. And they were interested with the hope of learning the details of other unsolved murders that Bundy was suspected of. So they're just, you know, letting him letting him do his thing right now, trying to find out what information they can get out of him. Because right, Bundy right. was a talker. He was a talker. That's insane. I mean, with how arrogant he was, that doesn't surprise me. I added some videos into the show notes. When you go to watch videos of him, um, especially like his last interview before he was executed, like the fucking phone rang in the background and he stopped and got this disgusted look on his face like, how dare you take my time? Ooh, what the fuck? Right. Ew. So in May 1985, his request to appeal the Leach verdict was again turned down. Good. And stay that way, fucker. <laughs> However, he continued to keep up the fight, and in 1986, he enlisted a new lawyer to assist him in escaping the death penalty this time. Again, Ted's just out here getting unimaginable amounts of legal representation, but you look at what happened to Eileen Warnos. I just can't get over that. Yeah, I'm never going to get over that. If you guys haven't heard Ray's coverage on Eileen Warnos, you should totally listen to that, because it's really sad and really sad. Sad. It's really fucking sad. It's really fucking sad. Anyways, moving on. Ted's execution date was initially scheduled for March 4th, 1986, but his execution was postponed while his new defense attorney, Polly Nelson, worked on his appeals for his previous murder convictions. Two months later, the appeal was denied, and another death warrant was issued to Ted by the state of Florida. Good. According to Polly Nelson's book, Defending the Devil... The last appeal was made to the U.S. Supreme Court, who eventually denied Ted's last day of execution on January 17, 1989. In 1986, Carol Boone and Bundy's love child moved back to Washington and never returned to Florida. Her whereabouts and those of Bundy's daughter are unknown. Wow. July 2, 1986, after Florida Governor Bob Graham signed two death warrants for the Chi Omega case, the 11th Circuit Court signed a permanent stay of execution 15 minutes before Bundy was scheduled to be executed. Holy fucking shit. 15 minutes before. Yes. What? 15 minutes. What the hell? January 17th, 1989, there was a new governor, Governor Bob Martinez, signed the second death warrant in the Leach case. January 21st, 1989, over the next several days, Bundy would go on to confess to various law enforcement agents. During the same period, he was visited often by Special Agent William Hagmeyer of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Behavioral Science Unit. Ted would come to confide in Hagmeyer, going so far as to call him his best friend. What? Eventually, Bundy confessed to Hagmeyer 
details of the murders that had until then been unknown or unconfirmed. So because he ended up with this rapport with Hagmeyer and he considered him his best friends, he's just he telling just, him stuff. He's spilling. He told him that he killed 30 people in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Florida between 1973 and 1978. My fucking God. November 18th, 1986, he obtains another stay of execution only seven hours before he is scheduled to die. The day after he was sentenced to death for the murder of Kimberly Leach, Bundy contacted Keppel again in 1988. And at that point, his appeals were exhausted. He had nothing left to save him. So Bundy was lucky to have beaten his previous death warrants for March 4th, 1986, July 2nd, 1986, and November 18th, 1986. Those are three times that he escaped execution because of a stay of execution. Like, it's just... (laughs) Jesus, Jesus fucking shit. So with execution in sight and all of his resources exhausted... Bundy confessed to eight official unsolved murders in Washington state. Bundy told Keppel that there were actually five bodies left on Taylor Mountain and not four as they had originally thought. And I covered the uh, the fifth person. Yeah, I remember you talking about that. Yeah, so Bundy confessed in great detail to the murder of Georgianne Hawkins, describing how he lured her to his car, clubbed her with a tire iron that he stashed, drove away with her in the car, and later raped and strangled her. Jesus fucking Christ. After the interview, Keppel reported that he was shocked when speaking with Bundy and that he was the kind of man who was, quote-unquote, born to kill. Keppel further stated, quote, He described the Issaquah crime scene where Janice Ott, Denise Naslin, and Georgine Hawkins had been left, and it was almost like he was just there. Like, he was seeing everything. He was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there. He is just totally consumed with murder all the time. End quote. Oh, my God. Bundy hoped that he could use these new revelations and partial confessions to get another stay of execution or hopefully change his sentence to life imprisonment. At one point, a legal advocate working for Bundy asked many of the families of the victims to fax letters to Florida Governor Robert Martinez and ask for mercy for Bundy in order to find out where the remains of their loved ones were. Like, how sick is that? That's fucked up. No. You're going to ask literal families of people that this monster fucking killed to defend him? Right. No. Fuck that. All of the families refused, as you can guess, and Keppel reported that Bundy gave distinct details about his crimes during his confessions and promised to reveal more along with another body dump site if he were given, quote-unquote, more time. Of course, he's just trying to grasp for anything. The ploy failed and Bundy would be executed on schedule. On November 17th, 1989, Ted's final death warrant is issued. The night before Bundy was executed, he gave a television interview to James Dobson, who was head of the evangelical Christian organization Focus on the Family. 
During this interview, Bundy made repeated claims as to the pornographic roots of his crimes. He stated that while pornography did not cause him to commit murder, the consumption of violent pornography helped shape and mold his violence into behavior too terrible to describe. He alleged that he felt that violence in the media, particularly sexualized violence, sent boys down the road to being Ted Bundy's. Wow, interesting. In the same interview, Bundy stated, quote, You are going to kill me, and that will protect society from me. But out there are many, many more people who are addicted to pornography, and you are doing nothing about that, end quote. Here's a clip of the interview that I'm talking about. There is no protection against the kinds, that, the kinds of influences that are loose in the society that, that, that tolerates. You feel this really deeply, don't you? Ted, outside these walls right now, there are several hundred reporters that wanted to talk to you. Yeah. And you asked me to come here from California because you had something you wanted to say. This hour that we have together uh, is not just an interview with a man who's scheduled to die tomorrow morning. I'm here and you're here because of this message that you're talking about right here. You really feel that hardcore pornography and the doorway to it, softcore pornography, is doing untold damage to other people and causing other women to be abused and killed the way you did Listen, I'm no social scientist and I haven't done a survey. I mean, I, I don't pretend that I know what John Q. Citizen thinks about this. <clears throat> but I've lived in prison for a long time now. And I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by an addiction to pornography. There's no question about it. The FBI's own study on serial homicide shows that the most common interest among serial killers is pornography. That's true. And it's, and it's real. It's true. That is, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting take. Yeah. It's an interesting take because I don't want to completely demonize porn or things of that nature. But at the same time, I know there's like levels of it. Yeah. And I can see the point that he's saying about, you know, when you tread down these different levels, basically, of a porn addiction or porn consumption, whatever it may be, there mm -hmm. are levels where maybe some not-so-good influence could be kind of ingrained in someone's mind, especially if the onlooker is an impressionable teenager yeah, or younger person. I mean, I don't know. It's complicated gray area, but I do see the point he makes. And more times than not, with killers, especially serial killers, you do see, for whatever fucking reason, you do see this connection between sex and violence. Yes. I mean, good God, you have not only Ted Bundy, but we have Jeffrey Dahmer. We have Richard Ramirez. Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper. My God, we reference him all the time. I mean, you see it. You see it. I can't sit here and definitively say that it's caused 
because of porn or because of this or because of that, you know, you can bring this whole nature versus nurture into it. But I guess a component could be very well be violent porn. I mean, in Richard Ramirez's case, if I'm not mistaken, like when he was younger, he had an uncle that was showing him videos and porn of women being killed, like very violent shit. And then, you know, he grew up to do what he did. Right. I mean, I kind of see it. I guess that's really all I can say at the end of that is that I do see it. It's something that we could indeed think about. But let us not forget good old grandpa's greenhouse porn collection. Right, you know right, what very, could have been in there. Right, we but don't know. Bundy was saying in that interview that he he came from a happy home, even though they may not have had very much money. They were still very, very, very involved. Yeah, and he was saying that at first, you know, you would go out to like your local stores and you would see like the softcore porn there, and then you'd be out playing around with your friends, and then just happen along something that somebody threw out that's a little more graphic. Right, right. So he was saying that, like, the pornography addiction began, and it's like you're, as you say, you go through the levels, and as you hit each level, that level that you're on, that stuff no longer excites you anymore. So you're searching for more. You have to go to the next step. Right, right. And then you have to go to the next step. And it's a never-ending cycle. But I just thought it was interesting where, you know, he was sitting there saying, and which I do quite believe, that he met many people in prison who also had a porn addiction. That were also coincidentally violent offenders. Right. I mean, it is, it's an interesting take. It definitely is this little bubble of area to think about. Truly, it is. I now, mean, it, it's means for good discussion. Now, uh, I, I hate this motherfucker, okay? Don't, oh. don't at me. You and said, try don't to get say, it twisted. Don't, don't get, get it, it twisted. twisted. There is no excuse for anything that this man did. There's no excuse for this man, period. Right, exactly. So according to Hagmeyer, Bundy contemplated suicide in the days leading up to his execution, but eventually decided against it. He said, quote, We had some discussions about morality and the taking of another life and his concerns about trying to explain to God about his actions, end quote. What in the hell, but okay. After drafting a will and letters to his mother, wife, and daughter, There was one more thing Ted Bundy wanted. He wanted to rehearse his execution. You're fucking kidding me. He deadass wanted to rehearse it. Narcissistic till the fucking end. Till the bitter end. So Hagmeyer talked him through it, the mechanics of it, and Ted told him, I'm afraid to die. Well, motherfucker, you wasn't thinking about that when you were killing other people who were afraid to die. Exactly. No fucking shit. Especially children. Like, imagine the situations you put these poor girls and women in. Fuck you, Ted. Right. For his last meal, he refused to make a special request, so he was given the standard last meal on Florida's death row, which was steak done medium rare, eggs over easy, toast with butter and jelly, milk, coffee, juice, and hash browns. He didn't eat a single bite. Wow. What a statement. Finally, on January 24th, 1989, at approximately 7 a.m. in the morning, outside the prison walls stood hundreds of onlookers and scores of news media representatives awaiting the news of Ted's death. People were tailgating and selling Burn Bundy Burn t-shirts and gold electric chair lapel pins. 
Jeez. Okay, it's like you said, and I know I'm going to bring him up again, good old Gacy, but when I talked about his execution, people were literally doing the same thing. Like, people had fucking John Gacy t-shirts and clown memorabilia, and they're fucking tailgating and drinking and treating it as a party. Again, like, I get it. We want him to die, but people scare the fuck out of me. Yeah. Electric chair-like decor. Yeah. And burn Bundy burn t-shirts. Yeah. People are fucking barbaric. That's all I'm saying. I'm just, we can just continue right on. People scare the shit out of me. Well, you know, we're seeing a continuation of like the olden days where people would go to executions and stuff. Uh-huh. It was almost like history repeated itself for the people where, you know, that is a form of entertainment for them. And I just don't get it. I don't get it either. Again, just fucking barbaric. People scare me. <laughs> I can't say that I would have wore a Burn Bundy Burn t-shirt and gotten my little golden electric chair pendant. Like, fuck y'all. I mean, I don't think so either. <laughs> mm, actually, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so his last words were, quote, I'd like you to give my love to my family and my friends, end quote. The black hooded executioner turned a switch that sent 2,000 volts through Bundy's body. As Assistant State Attorney Bob Deckel watched the execution, his mind replayed vivid images of that April day in 1978 when Kimberly Leach's body was discovered. He was quoted saying, I'm satisfied that it's over, but for some people like Kim Leach's family, it will never be over, end quote. My God. I mean, that's true, but fuck, that's heavy. Shortly thereafter... A white hearse emerged from the prison gates with the remains of one of the country's most notorious serial killers. As the vehicle moved through the surrounding crowd, people cheerfully applauded the end of a living nightmare. So that basically concludes the um, life and crimes of Ted Bundy. But there were two things before I wrap up today that I did want to add. So, Ted Bundy was suspected of murdering Lisa Wick and Lonnie Trumbull in Seattle. Bundy was 19 years old at the time and working at a local grocery store not far from the murders. So, I've included some show notes so you guys could read through some of the information regarding that. He was only suspected of it. He was never linked to it. Gotcha. And secondly... There's a book that I've come across called Reconstructing Sarah, The Lost Victim of Ted Bundy by Sarah A. Survivor on Goodreads. Wow. And apparently, alongside the four victims found at Taylor Mountain, they found a fifth victim, which I did talk about. And the following is a quick note from that author. Okay. When the records were finally released to me, this this is apparently the Jane Doe that they found, I believe. When the records were finally released to me after over a decade of trying to be heard, there were well over 1,000 pages of documents. Contained in those documents were facts of the case which refute the narrative that has been put out there and repeated over the years as fact. There was much more evidence found at Taylor Mountain than was discussed publicly. In fact, much of that evidence was forwarded on to the Superior Court of Washington and then all simply went quiet. It was stated publicly only skulls and jawbones were found, but that is not true. 
Skeletal remains at the scene, marked with evidence numbers, were sent to Superior Court, then returned back to the King County Sheriff's Office, and then sent to me. All the evidence numbers of the skeletal remains line up, and those numbers verify they were found on site in March of 1975 at the time of the discovery of Taylor Mountain. Further, those remains were sent to Texas in 2005 and identified via DNA three of the four girls found on Taylor Mountain and another who could not be identified. In addition, records show that at least one to two individuals besides Ott and Naslin were found at Issaquah, and at least one individual not matching the four girls found at Taylor Mountain was found at Taylor Mountain. Both crime scenes had girls' clothing, jewelry, and other evidence. None of this appears to have been preserved, end quote. Wow. She also said, quote, I can't emphasize enough that Reconstructing Sarah is not a book as much as it is a testimony, and while difficult to read, it is based on truth and lines up to the case in more ways than simply coincidence, end quote. Holy fucking shit. I kind of want to read that now, honestly. I want to read that, too. It sounds like a good read, and honestly... Obviously, it was found on Goodreads. I can't... I cannot fucking stand you. <laughs> honestly... We can take a deep breath. We have made it through three weeks of Bundy. Yes. And my friend, you have done the damn thing, and the damn thing has been done. And I'm glad the damn thing has been done, because I am done. My missing asshole agrees. <laughs> I am so happy that we're at the end of this. I know you guys can probably more than likely relate so we're going to go ahead and close things out, you guys. We hope you enjoyed the coverage today. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, you definitely can do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. And Gore Report. And you can also send us an email at GoreReportPod at gmail.com. Yay! Yay! Only if you want to, of course. So, uh, yeah, you guys, if I haven't made it clear enough already, I absolutely cannot stand Ted Bundy. The past five weeks have been incredibly stressful for me, and um, I'm just happy that he's fucking dead. I'm happy that he's dead. I'm thrilled. I'm really happy that he's dead, and I'm glad that he's never coming back. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Can we please watch, like, Demon Slayer or something after this? I think season three just came out. Absolutely. All right, guys. Bye. Bye.